Hello, everyone. I'm Peter Salovey. Thank you for joining me for Gale Talk. It's summer in New Haven, and it's a great time for anyone who enjoys baseball, including me. Fans are coming back to stadiums, and a full slate of games is scheduled for the Major League. My guests today are a father and son team. They know baseball, and they know Yale. It's a pleasure to be here with Bill DeWitt Jr., managing partner and chair of the St. Louis Cardinals, and Bill DeWitt III, president of the Cardinals. And they are both Yale graduates to Yale College class of 1963 and 1990, respectively. So thank you, Bill and Bill Three, for joining me on Yale Talk. Great to be with you, Peter. Oh, thank you for joining. So it's been quite a year, no doubt about it, including for professional sports. And I know our listeners would love to hear your perspective about what it's like to own and run a major league team during the COVID pandemic era. Well, certainly it's been like nothing we've been through before. We've owned the team and operated the team for 25 years, and it was a very challenging, has been a very challenging time. It really hit home originally in early March of 2020 when the commissioner stopped all spring training games. The virus had been proliferating throughout the country and got to the point where clearly the season was in jeopardy and no one really knew where we were headed. So to manage that process day one, we wanted to make sure we got every one of our players home safely and I think they cleared out of the spring training complex in 24 hours. Generally, after spring training, a lot of the work, particularly for me, I'm involved in the player side pretty directly. You know, start the season, see how it goes. This was totally different. MLB had a big project on its hands. And as you may recall, in the early days of the pandemic, it was very difficult to get testing. There weren't enough tests out there to find out how prevalent the virus was. So I give Central Baseball big credit for converting what had been a lab that did testing for performance-enhancing drugs, steroids, and other things, to a COVID testing lab. And they researched what the best test would be, and it turned out to be a saliva test, easy to take and get overnight results. So that was part of what we needed to do. You know, we wanted to make sure they were safe and didn't uh, test positive for COVID. Through that process, there was a lot of discussion of when we could actually get back to playing baseball. We ended up playing 60 games, and there was an agreement for prorated salaries. That was, I think, very fair for the players. Of course, part of that was we were opening our ballparks, but we didn't have fans. Were there any surprises in all of this? <laughs> we certainly had surprises at the Cardinals because... We certainly had them at Yale. <laughs> yeah. Everything we planned for in the early days of the pandemic, I remember, you know, you'd plan and within 48 hours, you'd have a new plan because the virus was constantly surprising us. Well, we weren't sure how many games we would play, what the spring training would look like because we needed to have a new spring training. Where were we going to have it? Going to have it in St. Louis or, or down in West Palm Beach or Palm Beach, Jupiter, really. And we decided St. Louis... There was no minor league season, so what we were going to do with all our minor league players, there were a lot of decisions to be made. And in the end, it worked out well. Unfortunately, the Cardinals ended up with the biggest outbreak. We started the season, and we were very shortly into the season, and we ended up with several players who tested positive, and then we did contact tracing and found a lot more players. We ended up having to not play a number of games, so when we came back, we played doubleheaders. And it was a pretty amazing year. I won't bore you with all the details, but in the end, everybody came out of it fine from a health standpoint. And, you know, we made the playoffs, which was an impressive thing. 
Yeah. And then meanwhile, kind of on the business side, we were managing it well, like every business where we sent everybody home and then tried to get them all connected by Zoom or whatever to continue working as needed. But the reality is it kind of fell on a handful of us who remained in the leadership group who, who came in every day still using all the usual social distancing and other mask things and stuff. What we needed to get done was just unrelated to what our normal mission was. Dealing with bankers, dealing with sponsors who were now not getting what they were supposed to be getting, dealing with all sorts of broken contracts on the business side that had to be reset, reevaluated. And thankfully, when you have good partners and good relationships, everybody sort of realized it was unprecedented. And rarely did we have to pull a contract out and read it and work through details about who gets to do what. It was it was very much a productive relationship approach to solving problems and saying, all right, what do we do here? How do we treat each other fairly to get through and, and on the other side of this? I'm sure the same was true at Yale. Very much uh, the culture became more collaborative, less confrontational. People were flexible. They worked outside of their job descriptions. They worked outside of their contracts just to get us through a tough time. And it's good to hear that you had that same experience too. Bill Three, let me stay with you uh, and ask as president of the Cardinals, are there leadership lessons that came out of this going forward, particularly ones that will help you with the team as you look to the future? Well, I would say there are definitely some things that will carry forward, certainly during the pandemic. I I found that maintaining connection and contact with my staff and conveying to my direct reports in particular that they need to keep a regular connection with their staffs I think was a critical thing that we all tried to do. We all got sick of the Zoom call, but it really was critical to maintaining those connections and that regular contact. I think just trying to be sympathetic to what people were going through. In some respects, you look at the larger economy, COVID created a lot of losers. And, and I'm sort of putting, of course, the human toll aside for a second. If you're just talking business right now, there are all these losers in the economy, but then all these weird winners. Who would have predicted that sports and entertainment and all these restaurants would just all of a sudden be shut down. And then if you're a cleaning company or if you're a mask making company, you know, there are all these random winners. I think a lot of organizations in microcosm had similar things happen where we had, let's say, 350 employees and we needed 50 of them desperately at the beginning of the pandemic. And we didn't need all 300 of the others at all just to get through this weird time where there was no games, nothing going on. But yet we had all this kind of triage to do on the business side. So I think the leadership for me was making sure that you're thankful and appreciative and interactive with those who you're relying on more than you ever have, but also connecting with those and not blaming them. It's not no, nobody's fault, but just making sure somehow they're connected to the organization through updates and things like that. Yeah. Communication always so important. Are there things that seem changed permanently? The new normal will be one in which we don't go back to the old normal. Now, has the game changed uh, in, in any significant way as a result of COVID? That's hard to say. We're not totally back to normal now, as you know, that we've got limited fans, although we're pretty encouraged that by early June, we'll have the opportunity to have full stadiums. What I think we did, and I hear from other clubs having done the same thing, it was a reevaluation of the organization, and it was an opportunity to maybe reset some things that as organizations develop over time, they, they grow and spread out. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of my contemporaries who have felt like in some ways it's given them an opportunity to be more focused on certain areas. And so I think you're going to see the fans won't see it, but from management standpoint, organizations restructured a little bit. I think from a 
pure baseball standpoint, I don't know that COVID will impact the nature of the game, but that's <laughs> that's another subject. Yeah, you didn't ask, but I'm glad to hear you raise that. I tend to be a little bit of a traditionalist as a fan, and these ideas about moving the mound back and giving the hitters more of an advantage, or even starting a player on second base, runner on second base for extra inning games, and you know all of these speed up the game. I, I love the pace of the traditional game, and when I'm in the stands, I have a scorebook, and I sit there and talk to the people next to me and score the game and just enjoy that natural rhythm of it. But I suppose that younger fans and others, that's not a popular view anymore. But it's not COVID that's created the pressure to change those things. Well, I think um, I'm a traditionalist probably as much as anybody, but I'm an advocate for change. We have a competition committee at MLB and I'm on that. If you look at the trend lines, game times have gone up from 228 to three hours and 10 minutes over uh, the last 30 years, I'll call it. Balls put in play have declined. Strikeouts have proliferated. Home runs are up. The analytic revolution has created some of this, but I think it's just been a natural progression as well. So I think getting back to a more athletic game where there's speed and stolen bases and balls in play and fielding requirements and all of that would be a good thing without really changing the nature of the game. My comment on that is that for those of us who grew up in the game, we love the game, I think we need to think about how the game's changed without the rules having changed. You know, these other sports, look at basketball, they put in a three-point line. We remember when that happened not that long ago. Football changes rules every year to just do what it takes to make the game more interesting, more exciting. And I think in baseball, we have somehow this complete attention to or respect for the rules because it's been around for so long. But what we really love is the game and the flow of it, like you said, and that's changing a little bit. So I'm an advocate and I know my father is, and many in baseball, of doing what it takes from a rules change standpoint to get back to the game we love. And I think that's what traditionalists should focus on. What changes can we make so that we can have more balls in play, more lead changes occur, the overall things about the game that we think we need to improve? Yeah, that's a great way to frame the issue. How do we make change to restore what we traditionally loved about the game? I really like that framing. You know, I'm not surprised that you're both so insightful about the game. The DeWitts are a baseball family, and Bill Three, your grandfather, and Bill, your father, that's the same person, of course, was an owner and ran a team. And the story I heard is that he started out selling soda at Cardinals games. Bill, tell us a little bit about your dad and how the family got into baseball. Yeah, he was a young kid, uh, North St. Louis, and not from a family of means, and looking to make a few dollars. He was a baseball fan and he went down and he got a job selling soda at the ballpark at the age of 14. And a year or so later, a couple years later, Branch Rickey, who was new at the Cardinals as their general manager, needed a young kid to really be a stenographer. And back then the offices were, were tiny and not much of a staff. Needed an assistant really. And the concessionaire said, well, I've got a good kid for you. He's a hard worker. He's sharp. And so he hired my dad, and kind of the rest is history. He was, you know, highly knowledgeable baseball person, but entrepreneurial as well. So, you know, I kind of grew up in that environment and was very fortunate that I got to learn the game, and it's helped me as I've gotten back into it. You know, it was a, great to be a kid in that era of baseball and being a baseball family. What a dream for a kid, right, to be, to be on the baseball field, uh, you know, uh, as a young boy. 
I was in St. Louis a few years ago, and you hosted me, and we were celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Yale Club of St. Louis, but we were also celebrating the fairly new Bush Stadium at the time and the growing ballpark village. I'd be interested in the way in which the ballpark anchors the neighborhood. We are partnering with our city here in New Haven on a real economic development and inclusive growth strategy locally. We don't have a ballpark in the middle of our town, but how has the new ballpark and in general the village around it affected more generally the neighborhood in St. Louis around it? I'll jump into that one. So when we first looked at building a new ballpark, we looked all over the region and we ended up right back where we started, which was an open lot right next to our old stadium. Long story short, we kind of switched locations right next to one another. And when we finished, the new ballpark looked at the downtown skyline. We left it wide open and there were 10 acres of potential development right where the old stadium was. And so we began thinking about how best to develop that. It was part of the original vision. You know, it took a while. We were ready to go on a couple occasions, and then some things happened, the 0708 recession for one, among other things. We finally got it going, and our first phase was mostly a retail entertainment piece to capitalize on that game day energy. And then The second phase, which we just completed a year ago and which is now finally being (laughs) occupied because uh, we had a year of, of COVID, that phase includes a residential tower, an office tower, a hotel, a health club, and additional retail and restaurants and things like that. And it's been great because we've really kind of transformed this little corner of downtown. And I think that there are many teams who now look at their relationship to their cities the way you and Yale looks at your relationship to New Haven, that it's part of it. It's an anchor, but it's an engine as well. And you have to think about it as more than just a baseball team. Now, there's some sites that just are not suitable for additional development if they're out in in a big parking lot in the suburbs or whatever. But the ones who are urban, I think everybody's looking at it this way. And we, I think, were on the front end of that. Although, in fairness, a lot of our ideas came from organically created urban relationships between ballparks and cities. For example, at Wrigley Field has always had that great relationship with Wrigleyville and the north side. San Diego preceded us a little bit. Boston comes mind as an urban spot that created ancillary development as a result. San Francisco. San Francisco, even the Bronx with Yankee Stadiums. Yeah. But ours was the first one I think that was master planned from the get-go. And that's something that I think we can hang our hat on a little bit and be proud of because it's really built, as you can see when you visit, into the fabric of downtown, but also in a hand-to-glove format based on having been able to master plan about a 20-acre site. I can't tell you how many teams have come to St. Louis, team representatives, and they want to go see Ballpark Village. Oh, we want one of these. Uh, And then they go back home and realize it's not that easy. It's not that easy to develop a site that fits it so perfectly. It's not that easy to get financing in a downtown core. And, you know, if they're not drawing $3 million a year like we draw, they're not sure how the economics are going to work out. But it's really been a home run for St. Louis. We have a big new residential tower that is virtually full, which is pretty remarkable in the downtown core. 
So it's exciting to see. Let's talk a little bit about baseball memories. I have a favorite Cardinals memory, you could say, and it goes back to the 1967 World Series. I was a boy and really an avid baseball fan. I happened to have been born in Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So, of course, that made me a Red Sox fan in that Red Sox-Cardinals World Series. And I really can remember I was nine years old and Bob Gibson facing off against Carl Yastrzemski and a seven-game World Series that the Cardinals ultimately won. We just had a great time, you know, hanging on uh, every inning and every batter and hiding our transistor radios in our pockets uh, so that we could listen while we were in school. And it just is a seminal memory of my childhood. I wondered if each of you have a favorite Cardinals memory, asking you to be fans rather than executives uh, for just a moment. Okay, well, that was a great win for the Cardinals and tough for the Red Sox uh, since they hadn't won in so long and reminded me of Bart Giamatti's great line, baseball's great, but it's designed to break your heart. That's it. It breaks your heart. Uh, He was a big Red Sox fan, as you know. Yes, he was. In fact, back when I was a graduate student at Yale and I was president of the Graduate and Professional Student Senate, I had a monthly lunch with Bart Giamatti. And his only requirement was that we do that in a public place so that people could see he was eating lunch with a graduate student. But at our very first lunch, he said to me, he goes, he said, now, Mr. Salovey, you can make the decision about what we talk about over lunch. Here are two ideas. You can whine to me about the plight of graduate students at Yale University. Or we could talk baseball. Now think about that for a minute. The choice is yours. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We spent a lot of time talking baseball. <laughs> he was knowledgeable. Oh, he knew the game. Yeah. Became commissioner. Yeah. Sure. So do you have a favorite Cardinals memory? Yeah. I mean, we've had so many great memories. We've been fortunate. We've had a fair amount of success. But we really had great teams in 2004, 2005, and 2006. 2004 and five, we won 100-plus games. We won... The pennant in 04, but lost in the World Series in 05. We lost to Houston in the NLCS, so that brings us up to 2006. We got to the NLCS playing the New York Mets. Game seven, ninth inning, bottom of the ninth. We have a lead. Adam Wainwright comes in to hold it. Two outs, base runners, home run we lose, extra base hit, who knows. He strikes out Carlos Beltran with a curveball that uh, Beltran, who was a great player, and he subsequently played with us and was terrific, took for strike three. And I remember as, as that at bat developed, Kathy, my wife, Bill's mother, turned to me and said, I don't think I can watch this. I don't, I, this is just too stressful. And I said, just relax and watch what happens. Of course, I was churning inside, probably worse than <laughs> she was. But when he did that, That was an incredible moment, and it set the stage for the World Series, which we played against Detroit, and we beat them in five games. So, well, you know, whenever I see him, or not whenever I see him, but remember that, your favorite memory? I said, well, that's certainly up there with the best of them. I love it that it's a pitching memory, basically, and that curveball must have frozen Beltran. Uh, (laughs) You know, New York never forgot about it. We used to laugh because we go to New York a lot, you know, in the East for a lot of reasons. But the nightly news, the sports that, you know, this is five, seven, eight years later, they'd lead with, well, the Mets did this or that today, but doesn't bring back, you know, and they'd show the pitch. We would just laugh because it's still in the psyche. But then, uh, you know, the Mets have had a great run, you know, not of late, but they've had their own success. 
success. So, but it was a great win. And they beat us earlier in the NLCS. So anyway, Bill? Yeah, I would also point to a moment of Cardinal victory, but it was the context that made it so memorable for me. This was 2011. And Game 6, which now goes down in history as one of the great World Series games because of the crazy comebacks that kept the Cardinals alive to push to Game 7 here at Bush Stadium. Anyway, I was up in the owner's suite and we had all family members everywhere, but they were kind of scattered. Like, I think my mom and dad were downstairs outside and I was running around doing some, looking at some things business-wise or whatever. But at the end of the day, in the middle of that game, I ended up in the suite with my son, who was nine at the time, and Lou Brock, uh, the great Hall of Famer who we sadly lost last year. Anyway, if you remember that game, we were down to our last strike a couple times and came back. And of course, everyone was ecstatic. Okay, now we got it tied. We got a chance. And then in extra innings, Josh Hamilton from Texas hits a home run. I think it was a two-run home run. Two-run home run. And it was just like all the air went out of the same. Like we did, we climbed Mount Everest and we we're five feet short of the top and we fell down. You know what I mean? It was just, it was over. And my son started crying and <laughs> Luke starts comforting him. He says, Will, oh, don't worry about it, Will. They're, they're going to come back. They're going to come back. And you could tell he was just being nice. I mean, we all knew it was over. And then in the next inning, we end up coming back in, in a tie fashion. So all the crazy excitement and ultimately David Freeze hits the walk-off home run. But mm-hmm. what's so memorable for me was the fact that when it happened, the joy in Lou Brock's face, and he comes up to Will and says, I told you, Will, I told you we were going to do it, as if he really knew, even though he was just making the little kid feel good. And so the two of them had this moment that I was watching that you just could never script or never replace. And that's the thing about these great moments. It's who you share them with and in what context that make them so memorable. Like you were saying, Peter, with your your friends were watching the 67 World Series. If you were just doing it by yourself and you were the only one with your transistor, it wouldn't have that same seared memory. And that's why it was so special for me. Yeah, that's right. Well, you got to have heart. And, and and that was a good example of it. And, and of course, uh, that 67 World Series I was that I was reflecting on, uh, I remember Lou Brock playing in it and being a great player. Let me talk for just a minute about sabermetrics. You had referred to them earlier and the way they changed the game. We had Craig Breslow on, not for the podcast, but for an event that we did for our athletes at Yale. And Craig pitched for Yale and pitched for the Red Sox and several teams in Major League Baseball. And he's now in the front office of the Cubs organization. And, you know, he was really saying that that's the future. It's a statistical game now. And we have a very popular new data science major. And I'm wondering if this is a full employment program for our graduates. Is this here to stay? It's here to stay, and we've hired a lot of smart people over the years. I have to admit, I was an early mover on this back in 2004. I could see there were a lot of amateur analysts out there. You know, some had great ideas. Others' ideas didn't have much value. But typically, the major league teams didn't give much stock to it because they were traditional organizations as were the Cardinals. So I decided to hire someone to head an analytics department. I hired Jeff Luno, who subsequently has gotten a lot of publicity and notoriety with Houston. But Jeff was a very smart guy and a baseball fanatic. And I thought, I want somebody from the outside. And so I brought him in and I said, look, we've got a clean slate here. Here's what I want to accomplish. Gave him a list of goals. He worked really hard and it helped us because a lot of teams just had disdain for anything other than traditional scouting and so forth. Scouting's critical. 
But when you add it to the analytics, it gives you a real edge. Although I don't think there's much edge now because all teams are doing it. But it has impacted the game in some ways adversely, like with the shift, which I think should be eliminated. It's really hurt left-handed hitters and it's hurt offense. So, you know, as Bill III said, other teams make rules and, you know, we should have a rule, in my opinion, that you can only have two defenders between first and second base. and They got to be on the dirt, like the way the game was always played. So in my view, that's analytics gone wrong for the game. That's a right move for the team doing it. And I think that's kind of the push-pull now of where we are. By the way, I think Mike Elias was on your panel as well uh, that you referred to. And we hired Mike originally. He worked under Jeff Luno and actually did scouting for us. And then when Jeff went to Houston, he took Mike and he became their scouting director. So Mike Elias is a big talent. He's running the Baltimore baseball operation now and great guy. We had Theo Epstein give a class day speech some years ago, and he really talked about the importance, of course, of statistics in baseball, but also the importance of things that are difficult to measure, even for a psychologist like me, that are part of the game too. And how do you measure that drive and motivation and resilience when the team is down and there's a rain delay and you're regrouping under the stands and trying to figure out how to go out and win. And some teams have that chemistry and some don't. And some players are able to rev the whole team up and others can't. And, you know, someday we'll be measuring those things too, but right now we're not. Yeah, no question about it. You know, incidentally, Theo's got an important job right now, which it was nice of him to take after he left the Cubs. MLB hired him to research all of this and determine how we go back to something that's a game that is more like the game that used to be played. Understanding the analytics are are always going to be a part of it. So Theo's kind of at the front line here. And right now they're experimenting, we should say we as an industry are experimenting with rules like making the base a little bigger. So the distance to go to second on a stolen base is less. Having step off requirements for pitchers trying to pick off a batter, things like that. So Theo's on the, he's on the front line there and it'll be interesting to see how it all works out. I'm pretty optimistic. Theo knows what he's doing. And I'm just proud as president of Yale that there's so many Yaleys making contributions to Major League Baseball at all kinds of levels. Let's talk a little bit about athletics at Yale. Our softball team plays its games at the DeWitt Family Stadium. It opened in 2001. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of athletics at an Ivy League university from your point of view. Well, I'll jump in. I mean, I think they're absolutely critical. I was a golfer. I played on the golf team under Dave Patterson, and he was a great character pro golfer. And I also played some JV hockey and, and intramural hockey. But for me, I saw what it did to, in terms of time management. Obviously, the camaraderie with other members of the team. Looking back, some of the most vivid and positive memories are playing sports at Yale and being with those teammates. It just creates those lasting memories. And I think that it's just critical to an institution like Yale that we continue to promote and support student-athletes because I really do believe also that it prepares them for life after. And I've talked to a lot of people, not just in sports, but in other industries who like to recruit college athletes because, and it doesn't need to be a top-rate program necessarily, just something that shows that somebody can totally balance their time and organize their day and also have that competitive edge, which is one of those intangibles that we talked about earlier. You know, I noticed this too. I taught many Yale athletes in 
introductory psychology. And the athletes, when they fail, they're resilient. They get up, brush themselves off, and, and get back to work. They do manage their time very well. They have to. They're team-oriented. They do great work on a group project. Very self-disciplined. You know, they get their work done and they study. I'm very impressed with the attributes of character. Whether it's varsity athletics or just have an athletic commitment of some kind helps produce. So let me finish uh, our conversation today going back to the Cardinals, of course. You hold the record for the most World Series titles in the National League. That's 11. And you have some of the most enthusiastic and loyal fans of any organization. What do you think created that? And can we learn anything for Yale and the Bulldogs by following the Cardinals' example? Well, when we took over operation of the team 25 years ago, we were inheriting a great legacy of success. And our goal was to to build on that success and enhance the franchise to the best of our ability. And I just feel like over the years, we felt an obligation to do that. One of our goals, of course, was to win the 10th World Championship, which we were fortunate to do. But in the early days, we made a big effort to acquire players. We inherited a team that really wasn't very competitive at the time, added a lot of players, and then made some fortunate trades to try to keep the Cardinals at the forefront of our division or the National League and in baseball. I think some teams maybe don't have the capacity to do it. We're very fortunate that we have a great fan base that year in and year out, we draw 3 million people. And as I always say, the fans drive our business because they enable us to do what we do. But you can lose that too. If you you get a little careless or don't keep your eye on the ball and think that, well, maybe there's a two or three year period here where we need to regroup and build up, you know, you never know what's going to happen there. So I would say that for the Cardinals, I don't think I would have to go back and look at the record, but we haven't had two consecutive losing seasons in a long, long time. And we certainly don't want to have them on our watch. And the fans respond and they enable it to happen. So we inherited a legacy and it's our job to maintain it and keep it going. Yeah, and I would add to that and complimenting my father here shamelessly since he's my boss. But I think he has overseen the baseball operation as well as the business side. But his passion is overseeing that baseball side. And we've had in 26 years now three managers and two general managers. I mean, the consistency has been remarkable. I don't think that's necessarily the formula that everybody should take, but in our case, it allowed us to get through potholes and really kind of establish organizational continuity. The other attribute I think that he's always got is a balance between short-term and long-term interests. The next game is always the most important game. There's no doubt about it, no matter what you've already done in the game. It's about tomorrow, but it's also about next year and the year after. And in baseball, you're making long-term decisions when you're signing a free agent, say, for five, six, seven years. And you've seen it in other teams where they might put all their chips on the table in one year because they just feel so much pressure to win. And then you get past that win or lose, and then where are you? You know, you're behind the eight ball, you're catching up. You And the economics of the game are so competitive that it's very difficult to steer a ship quickly here. So always wanting to win and doing things that make sense in any given year and pushing the envelope on the economics to win, but also keeping an eye towards the future is a critical piece of what I think has led to our long-term success. So uh, consistency, resilience, 
balance of short and long term, all very good leadership lessons embedded in some of those observations, too. Well, I know I speak for many at Yale and in our alumni community when I say that uh, we'll be rooting for you, both the Cardinals as a ball club and the Cardinals as a business. I want to thank Bill Jr. and Bill III, both for being with us today. This has been a great conversation for me, and I'm sure our listeners as well. Always enjoy catching up with Yale graduates. And of course, I'm looking forward to a time when we can welcome you and other alumni back to campus for reunions and other events. Those days are coming soon. To our friends and members of the Yale community, thank you for joining me for Yale Talk. Until our next conversation, best wishes and take care. The theme music, Butterflies and Bees, is composed by Yale Professor of Music and Director of University Bands, Thomas C. Duffy, and is performed by the Yale Concert Band. <laughs>